You can go ahead and take your seats, and um, the children's church is dismissed at this time. And if you wish to, you may turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 15. The Gospel of John, chapter 15. Before we begin, I just want to say a word of thanks to the two brothers who filled the pulpit the last two weeks. Um, two weeks ago was Mike Rohr, and I had a chance to read his message. And uh, Dan Overby last week, I had a chance to listen to it on podcast. Podcast is an amazing thing. You just hook it to your computer, and it automatically downloads it. And, um, and I was moved by the passion with which he spoke last week, and I'm extremely grateful for their ministry to us. It's good for God's people to hear the different voices of, of God. God's people um, bringing the word of God to us. Well, if you've been following us or with us for the last four weeks, um, five weeks actually, I think if you would have paid attention, you would have noticed that there was a general theme that we were going after. And we just desired as we entered into a brand new year to liberate and encourage all of God's people to serve Christ where he has placed you. Um, in your career fields um, and at home and and in the neighborhoods where you live because I completely and wholeheartedly believe that the greatest impact that this church family will have on the lost community of Fairfield, California will be through you living out your individual Christianity where you spend most of your time and that is where you work and where you live. And along those same lines, I I was thinking this last week about the the church, the Christian church of the first three centuries when it was just birthed in in Jerusalem and how quickly, within three centuries, it permeated the Roman Empire. And it was at a time when there were no 501c um, nonprofit organizations to do homeless ministry or tutoring ministry. There was no Christian coalition. There's no internet, no radio broadcasting. So the question is, how, how in a matter of three centuries did Christianity take the Roman world? And the answer is that it was simple but bold Christians living out their faith and serving Christ as shopkeepers, some as Roman soldiers, some as reformed tax collectors, some as bakers. They simply lived out their faith and testified where they worked, and where they lived. And that's how the church grew. And I still believe while those corporate entities and the ability to have a 501c um, nonprofit organization to do amazing things like feeding homeless and tutor kids, while those are important, the greatest, most pervasive impact of the church will be through you as an individual simply living out your faith and testifying to Jesus where you work and where you lived. I'd be willing to bet that 90%, if not more, of those of you who are followers of Christ here this morning, you came as a result of an individual, not an organization. That just goes to show how God works through the individual out in the community in bringing his light to dark places. And that's what we sought to do. Well, this morning I want to bring that series of messages on faithfulness and fruitfulness where God has you kind of in for a landing. And I want to do it by going back to the root, back to the cause, back to the essence of what makes fruitfulness and faithfulness where God has planted you possible. Because 
I believe that the roots of how we live out faithful Christianity and fruitful Christianity in many respects is counterintuitive. Counterintuitive, that's a word that I heard, not for the first time, but it caught my attention for the first time on the golf course. Um, my son was getting a golf lesson by the, by the club pro, and, um, and while he was doing that, one of the golfers who was fairly decent at golf said to me, you know, one of the secrets of golf, and this is my paraphrase, one of the secrets of golf is that it's counterintuitive. Now, let me just say for the record that the name Dan Deckard and the word golf should not be in the same sentence, unless it's accompanied by the words bad and disastrous. Um, in fact, at one point, the golf pro said, hey, we're driving balls. He said, why don't you look at your dad's swing? And so Daniel looked at my swing and he said, on second thought, let's not look at his swing. <laughs> That's what he did. But I know enough in what little I know that when he said that golf is counterintuitive, that it resonated. What he meant by that is that what you are inclined to naturally do to try and play golf, it's just the opposite. So, for example, the natural inclination, if you want to drive the ball hard, is to pull out your one wood, set up your, your golf ball, and to swing and crush the ball as hard as you can. That's the intuitive way to play golf, which anybody who's ever swung a club as hard as they could at a golf ball knows that that's, that usually ends in failure and frustration. You want to throw your club, and I'm trying to hit the thing, and you miss it, or you top the ball, and it doesn't even go past the ladies' tees. Rather, rather, it's the contrary. The slower swing drives the more effective ball. It's counterintuitive. It's counter what you would naturally do. And I believe that that's the case also when it comes to Christian growth, fruitfulness, and faithfulness in life. That the, the intuitive thing to do to try and grow, to be more faithful, to be more fruitful, is to focus on fruitfulness. The direct approach so at the beginning of the year, sometimes we muster up some energy and we write some resolutions. I'm not saying resolutions are bad, but we're thinking, I want to change this year. I want to do more this year than I did last year. We give ourselves kind of a, a pep talk. We may kind of more or less act as taskmasters and say, I'm going to do more for Christ this year. I'm going to sacrifice more. I'm going to give more. I'm going to serve more. And then we find ourselves a few months down the road frustrated and feeling like we failed. That is the intuitive approach to Christian growth, to try harder. But I want to say that you will never grow in faithfulness or fruitfulness by focusing on faithfulness and fruitfulness. It's like trying to crush the golf ball. I'm thinking if I hit it as hard as I can, it's going to be driven far. That's not how it works. Does God want us to be faithful and fruitful? Absolutely. But we go about it in a totally counterintuitive way. And that counterintuitive way, I believe, is brought up here in John chapter 15. And it's something that we have to get our minds around because if we simply focus on being faithful and fruitful, we will find ourselves frustrated in failure. But if we take the counterintuitive approach, which is what I'm going to call the Jesus approach, to change the faithfulness and fruitfulness, then I believe we will see greater abundance of fruit. So here is this chapter, this teaching of Jesus, which many Christians are familiar with, which I believe gives us the proper root, ground, cause of faithfulness and fruitfulness in life. 
me read it for us from the screen behind me too. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does, uh, does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, uh, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Now, it's really easy in the nuances and complexities of this teaching of Jesus to kind of get lost and confused. So I'm going to attempt to just keep it simple and centered. I mean, the basic image is fairly straightforward. There's a vine, there's branches, and there's fruit. Those are the three main things around which Jesus wraps his teaching. I'm only going to focus on two of them. Um, it's obvious from the text that the vine is Christ, and the branches are the disciples, and the fruit is Christian productivity. That could be in the form of greater love, patience, kindness, spiritual fruits, or in the case of tangible deeds such as ministry, service, washing feet, symbolically, uh, mentioned, and so forth. So that fruit is the fruit that's spoken of here. So you have basically vine, branches, and fruit. And I'm going to focus on the vine and the fruit. We obviously are the branches. He's speaking to us. So we're going to focus on vine and fruit, or Christ and the productivity. And I want to start by talking about the productivity of the disciple. Namely, that, that God designed us to be fruitful. To abound in love and grace and compassion in words and in deeds. And you find that scattered throughout this passage. Just um, kind of peering back over the text, I've taken the liberty to highlight it in, in yellow here, that you just keep seeing the word fruit come up. Verse 2, bear fruit. Again in verse 2, bear fruit. Again in verse 2, bear more fruit. Verse 4, bear fruit. Uh, verse 5, bears much fruit. Uh, verse 8, uh, bear much fruit, and so forth. It's fruit, 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 fruit. That tells us that fruitfulness in the Christian life is very important to the Lord. We're supposed to be fruitful people. Where we live, where we work, bear this fruit. Now, I'm going to kind of draw out three strands of what that fruitfulness means, or should I say um, different facets of it. One thing you see in this passage that I believe comes screaming out at you is that fruitfulness in the Christian life is a necessity. So you have in verse 2, um, Jesus teaches that every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And he says in verse 6 that they are picked up, gathered, and they are thrown into the fire. That is, they are destroyed. 
That tells us that fruitfulness in the Christian life is a necessity. It's not an option. You will not find a true Christian who is fruitless. Now, as a bit of a side note, I don't believe that a true Christian can be fruitless. There are superficial connections to Christ, a.k.a. Judas, where a person is from all outward appearances connected to Christ, but truly has never abided in the vine. But I simply want you to notice that fruitfulness is a necessity. It's not an option. The Christian must be fruitful. Secondly, the second thing I want want to draw your attention to is the fact that God's in charge of increasing fruitfulness. That is, fruitfulness will increase, according to verse 2, as the Father prunes. Notice, we don't prune ourselves. He's the one who does the work to maximize the fruitfulness in life. So it's his work, and he is interested and concerned in working in each of our lives to maximize the fruitfulness of the Christian life. Now, again, as another aside, as many have observed, the idea of pruning is a painful process. And in my opinion, many of the adversities that are taking place in our day in people's lives financially, maritally, and otherwise are nothing less than God doing the work of pruning for greater productivity in the Christian life. If we have eyes to see what he's doing, that he's working in your life. There's not a bad thing that he's deepening faith and deepening opportunities and a passion to love people and so forth. So that's what he's doing. So... It's necessary. Fruitfulness is necessary. It increases by God's hand. And then the last thing that I want to say about fruitfulness, and this is kind of a give me for the Christian community, is that ultimately our fruitfulness is intended to glorify God because verse 8 says, by this my Father is glorified that you bear not just a little but much fruit. So the fruitfulness of the Christian life actually honors the Lord. I think that's probably what Jesus had in mind when he said in Matthew that let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So it's ultimately for his name's sake, not our own name's sake, not for our legacy, not for our reputation. It's for his legacy and his reputation that our lives bear fruit. So those three, three, three things kept in mind about fruitfulness of the disciples' life. It's necessary. It will increase through life by God's pruning, and it is ultimately to the glory of God. Or to put it in contemporary lingo, the Christian life is supposed to be productive, productive by necessity. It is to increase in productivity all to the glory of God. Now, that that's stated, I want you to notice what Jesus does not say in this passage. In this whole teaching about fruitfulness and the necessity of it and the increase of it and how it glorifies the Father, he never once commands it. There is not a single imperative in this passage, not a single directive to be fruitful. That would be the counter, or that would be the intuitive approach. The most of us, when we want to motivate people or our kids, usually it resorts to riding them or lighting a fire under them or barking at them or chewing them out and saying, you need to be more productive. Jesus does that nowhere in this passage. He nowhere commands it. He's not trying to, like a taskmaster or a slave master, drive his disciples to bear fruit. You'll look in vain in these 11 verses for a single command to be fruitful. That, I think, is of enormous importance. 
importance. And something that the Christian has to have driven into his or her soul and mind and approach to life. Because the main commands, imperatives, and directives in this passage about fruitfulness is not focused on the bearing of fruit, but on the connection with Christ. So you have, here's again, taking liberty with the yellow here, the main commands of the text of all of this fruitfulness. Verse 4, he says, abide. Now he's telling us what to do. Abide in me and I in you. And it comes up again in verse 9, abide in my love. And then that terminology of in me and I in you, this connection just kind of abounds through the whole thing. Verse 1, in me, abide in me, and I in you, abides in, abide in me, abide in me, I in him, abide in me, abide in me, I abide in you, abide in my love, you will abide in my love, abide in his love, in you. It's like all of this in you and you in me. There is no way humanly possible to speak of a more intimate, continual connection than what he says here. Even the prepositions he uses uses the word in. He could have stated it differently. He could have said, as I abide with you, you abide with me. Or he could have said, as I abide by you, you will abide by me. He could have said, "Uh, as I abide in your general vicinity, you will abide in my general vicinity. But he doesn't. He goes to the, the single most intimate word in the human language, any languages, of me in you and you in me. You can't get closer than that. And that, I believe, brothers and sisters, is the most important priority of the Christian life, and it underscores and is the foundation of all fruitfulness and faithfulness. The great priority is not to be fruitful, but to be connected. And in that connection, fruit will flow. Abide in me and I in you. It's just that connection to Christ who is throughout the scripture called the prince of life, the author of life, the essence of life. He is the life giver and he is life. And he says, connect to me. That's how fruit abounds and that's the priority. That's the central mandate of the Christian life. You want to be fruitful where you live, where you work, your neighborhood, or at church? Stay connected. Back up with me and think about the logic from a branch vine perspective. If branches could think and talk and make decisions, no, they can't, obviously, but it would be utterly fruitless for the branch to say to itself, you know, last year was 2011. I only had six grape clusters. But 2011, I'm going for 12 grape clusters. It would be fruitless for the the branch to focus on more fruit. In the same way that like a garden hose can't will itself or decide, hey, I'm going to pour out more water. That's not up to the hose. It's up to the faucet and, and the source of what goes through the hose. So the branch is simply a conduit of, of what Christ has done, his nutritional power, so to speak. So rather, the branch, instead of focusing on how much fruit can I produce, which is going to 
end up throwing itself back on its own strength. Its primary perspective and primary duty and objective is to stay as deeply embedded and securely connected to the vine as possible. Then it will flow, then fruit will go. That is the main focus of the branch that is fruitful. So greater greater fruitfulness comes not by focusing on fruitfulness so much as focusing on Christ. Bide in me. That's what he says. Or if I could put it in my own words, Jesus is saying to him, listen, focus your passions on who I am and the fruit will flow in your life. We are to live not productivity-centered lives, but Jesus-centered lives. Now, the question that I have in my mind is, is, what then does that mean? Because simply abide in me and I abide in you is far too general. What exactly does it mean for me as a Christian believer to, to be securely embedded in the vine so that fruit can flow as I focus on him? It means at least four things. One, which is right on the surface and should be obvious to all by nature of the the image itself, is that it means total dependence on Christ. Total, complete dependence. The branch lives because of the vine. It can do nothing because of the vine. Jesus, of course, brings that out. You can do nothing apart from me. Now, it's one thing to say that. It's one thing to know that here. It's another to believe it here. That by yourself you have nothing of eternal significance to offer to anybody. Doesn't make a difference how many zeros are at the end of your salary. That will do nothing apart from Christ. Doesn't make a difference how, how well you communicate, how smart you are, or how physically strong you are. The Christian is to be completely totally dependent upon what Christ provides. The essence of Christianity, according to Paul, is having no confidence in human flesh whatsoever. So, the counter is also true. Where there is a sense of self-sufficiently, like self-sufficiency, where I feel somehow that I have something to contribute to Jesus, be it finances, physical or intellectual, is the moment that that connection that I have to Christ begins to close. And so does the joy of the Christian life. He wants complete dependence. That the only way I can make an impact, and you know it here as well as here, is that I completely depend on Him as a teacher or whatever I do, and I'm going to completely trust that His grace will supply what's needed for the moment to make an impact and bear fruit. That's obvious part number one, to connect in total dependence upon Him. There is more, however, in this passage than just dependence. He says here in verse 7 that this mutual abiding of us abiding in him and him in us also takes place by his word being in his people. Verse 7 says, if you abide in me, and now here's a tangible way that he abides or connects in us, is my words abide in you. They dwell in you. Perhaps Paul was thinking of this when he wrote in Colossians 3.16, let the words of Christ dwell in you richly. 
And brothers and sisters, it's not talking about an intellectual acquisition alone. But the way that the water fills a sponge is the way that the gospel is to inhabit the lungs of the church and us as individuals. So that it fills our mind, it fills our affections, and it shows itself in experience. That's how it's to breathe and live in the church. And where there is very little gospel and word, and the word of Christ, by the way, centers on who he is, what he has done, and how he has graciously called us and enabled us to live. As that inhabits God's people, we connect to him. Like it or not, in this age, the fiber optic cable of God's connection to his people, Christ's connection to his people, is his gospel. And we live and we produce fruit as we cling to it and as it dwells and lives in us. Now that connects to the message that was delivered last week passionately by Dan Overby. Then in the end, the effectiveness of the gospel spoken is not tied to your persuasive ability or your verbal ability. That the gospel has power in and of itself to open the heart and change a life. The power resides in the gospel, not in the person bearing the gospel. Now we think about that and most naturally apply that to the unbeliever. That the power of salvation contained in the gospel opens the eyes of the unbeliever and we easily forget the gospel of salvation is also the power for the one who is found, not just the one who is lost. Did you pick up that part? The power of the gospel is not just to convert the lost, but as it continues to live in the body, as it's preached, as it's studied, as it's meditated upon, its power is unleashed in a continuing way in the life and body of the church. And in us as individuals, we change as the gospel power in dwelling God's people is unleashed. So if you're used to a kind of Christian faith that is not word-inhabited, then your abiding is going to be meager at best. It'd be like the slow skis, you know, the commercial. You got the Comcast with the really quick, you know, connection. You got the old DSL that hardly works. It's just like the more you take the word of Christ into your life and let it inhabit your soul, is the more you will change and you will sense Christ abiding in you and you will see fruit in faithfulness. So there you have two ways, tangible ways. Total dependence, word, saturating your life and the community of faith. But he takes it another step forward. It's not just the word inhabiting the church, but it's the church's submission to that word. You'll notice what he says here in verse 10. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. If you keep my command, he's talking about obedience, submission to his teachings. Now, for those who might be newer to the faith, let me clarify that in no way does our submission and obedience to the commands of Christ win his love. The love of God always precedes obedience. It was while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us. Even when we were dead in trespasses, he loved us. Obedience is a response to that. Nevertheless, 
He says, if you keep my commandments, if there is submission in your, lo- in, in your life to my teachings, you will abide in my love. There's abiding taking place. The other thing that should be said is that the same gospel writer who wrote the gospel of John is the same gospel writer who wrote 1 John, who said that if any man says he's not a, he has no sin, he's a liar. Which means the only obedience we can offer to Christ will be imperfect, although increasing, I believe, obedience. The way to deeper experiences of the joy of Christ is to see your life conformed to what he has taught you. And that, I believe, is a very timely word for a generation in which the same kind of immoral behavior that takes place outside the believing community is now contaminating and taking place in the believing community. So that we have a hard time saying things like, you know, sexual Union outside of covenantal marriage is wrong. It has always been wrong. It will always be wrong. Whether it's harboring bitterness or lack of forgiveness. That if there is a calloused defiance in the Christian heart toward the teachings of Christ and not submitting to them, What that ends up doing to your heart and to your soul is the same thing that plaque does to the arteries of the body. You know, just layer upon layer, pretty soon it closes in your arteries so the blood can barely flow and the cells of your body are starving for oxygen. That's what sin does. But greater levels of obedience, uh, those besetting sins, letting them go for the joy set before you, knowing that in greater conformity to the teachings of Christ, his joy will be in us and our joy will be made full. Well, that's a reason to submit. So you want to be connected to the vine in a life-giving, joy-producing way? Then it's total dependence. It's allowing his word to dwell in you. It's allowing or working in your life to conform to his teaching. And then I want to bring out one last one which has to do with his love. What it means to abide in Christ and have that connection that produces fruit and faithfulness. Verse 9 says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Now, I can't wrap my head around verse 9. Because what it's saying is that the measure of Christ's love for you and for me, unlovely and unrighteous people, is the same measure that the Father has a love for his Son. As the Father loved me, so have I loved you. Granted, there's some differences. Christ is perfect, we are not. Nevertheless, the measure of his love is immeasurable. That's how much he loves us. And what he's telling us as disciples is to abide within the realm, the flow, the stream of Christ's love for us. And not just once a week when you come to service, but as a, as a daily pattern of life and knowing Christ loves you. Knowing a divine love that humbled itself, that suffered brutality and betrayal. A love that threw itself on the cross and died for the unlovely and the unrighteous. 
a divine love that conquers, overcomes, and forgives all of our sin. And not only does away with the bad, but also makes us alive together with Christ, seats us at the right hand of the Father with Christ, so that in the coming ages He might show all of us the immeasurable, inexhaustible grace of God, which means it'll go on forever and ever and ever. The show will never end. That is the immensity of love. And there is nothing that should be more stirring and motivating in terms of fruitfulness and faithfulness than that single truth. When I read the New Testament authors and they get to places where they talk about the cross, it's as if they have to stop and catch their breath. And if God's people would at each moment you come to the cross and remember the level and depth of the love of God for you so the point, to, to the point where you're, you like have to consciously breathe. Then you'll know his love for you and you will abide in his, his love. So, here, so here's, the, here's the counterintuitive part. Most of us think to be more productive, to be more faithful and more fruitful, we have to focus on productivity, faithfulness, and fruitfulness. You will wear yourself out, frustrate yourself, and in the end fail because that is the wrong direction to go. The way to fruitfulness, faithfulness, productivity, and change is by looking the opposite direction and looking at Christ and being connected to Him. And then the fruit will flow. Notice I, say, I said, it will flow. I didn't say it may flow. It will flow. So you connect to Him. Stay connected to Him. Get deeper in connection to Him and the fruit will flow. It's less about trying hard and less about abiding deeper. Total dependence. His word filling you. Your life surrendered to his will. And standing in the light and the glory of his love. And brothers and sisters, you will see fruit. And that's the way forward, but it's counterintuitive. Go ahead and try and crush the golf ball of the Christian life. It's going to go everywhere, but not the place you want to go. You focus on Christ. Let your heart feast upon Christ, the love of Christ. And then you'll find productivity levels will rise and you will be more faithful in 2011 than you will, be, will have been in 2010. You know what it reminds me of? This simple little teaching of Jesus. It reminds me of the story of the, the Taj Mahal. So you've probably seen pictures of it, an elaborate structure over there in India. Um, it is considered one of the seven wonders of the world and considered by many to be the most perfect, not to mention beautiful structure to have ever been built on planet Earth. It's amazing to read the history of it and know that it took a mere 22 years to build. 22 years, now that sounds like a lot to you and I, but put that in the contrast of the Cathedral of Notre Dame, which took almost 200 years. 200 years to build the Cathedral of Notre Dame 22 years to build the Taj Mahal. That meant a whole mass of productivity happened in a very short time to make this perfect, or as perfect can be, building that's immaculate and ornate. What was the secret? What enabled such productivity to happen in such a short time? The simple answer, according to the story, is, is love. A prince 
grieving over a wife that he loved who died giving birth to his child was so important to him and so loved by him that he decided he was going to build her the most beautiful building that ever existed. It was his connection to his wife. Now, if that's what connection to another human being can produce in 22 years, the question I have to ask is, what kind of productivity would come out of understanding the ravishing effects of Christ's love for us and a reciprocal love for him that would be willing to do anything? Productivity flows out of understanding, knowing Christ's love for us, abiding in that love, saturating your life in that love, and then living out that love. It works. I know it works. So this year, your main point, your main mandate, as it is every year, connect to Christ. Grow close to Christ. Deepen your relationship with Christ, and faithfulness and fruitfulness will grow. And you will be an instrument of change where God has you in your workplace and at home. Father, I thank you for your goodness and grace. I thank you that you give us instruction and teaching to reorient our thinking, to help us to think along the lines of spirit and not of flesh. Lord, may we be a congregation and may we be uh, individual believers whose main focus and gaze and sight is set firmly and steadfastly on Jesus, who is the author of life, who is the one who sustains, who is the fruit producer in our life. And may this year, 2011, be a year in which we see you work in our midst and bear fruit in our workplaces, at home, and in life. And we just thank you for your goodness and grace now. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.